when a COVID-20 or 21 or 23 comes along, we can't be having these kind of shutdowns again, because it's just so damaging to society and it's so disproportionate. So, you know, if you're a, a fancy Wall Street banker and now you can go to Florida or Colorado and work remotely, no big deal. If you're a, a six-year-old in a, a poorer neighborhood is missing a year of learning to read, this is a problem. Or if you have a job where you can't afford to miss a day because you can't miss the paycheck. So you have to go to work in the supermarket or the meat cutting place or the factory or driving a bus. It's really disproportionate influence. Hello, everyone. I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA. And thanks for tuning in to the Optimistic Outlook podcast. This is part three in a series of episodes focused in on the effort to reopen America's schools. We explored how Malloy College in New York is using our air purification solutions to bring students back onto campus. We then delved into the experience of how we helped a K through 12 school district in Augusta, Maine reopen using similar technology and by upgrading their ventilation systems. The Augusta School is now in person four days a week and Malloy College, when I last spoke to their president, had had zero cases on campus during the previous month. And now they're aiming to have all students back by fall. In this episode, we're gonna look a little deeper at the long-term benefits of the work underway to create healthier, more resilient school infrastructure with a guest who is a true expert in this field. John McEmber is a lecturer at the Harvard Business School. He's also the co-author of Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity, which we'll link to in our show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd also go listen to John on the Harvard Business Review podcast, the IdeaCast podcast. We'll link to that as well. Are we really just helping schools reopen? Or are we actually doing work that's essential to the future of U.S. education? Let's find out. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You know, a lot of us are thinking these days about the quality of the air we're breathing indoors. We've all learned about the transmission of viruses like the coronavirus and, and recognize that air quality can make a big difference for our overall health. But you've been interested in buildings and their air quality for quite some time. I'd love to know how you first got interested in healthier buildings and what does it mean these days when so many more people are interested in the topic? Well, thanks for asking and thanks for having me on the podcast. So I have been interested in healthy buildings and before that uh, energy efficient buildings and a number of other aspects in the building area. Before I came to Harvard, I spent 30 years in real estate and construction thinking about these kind of issues. And I'll answer the direct question sort of in three timeframes. One is, pre-COVID-19, one is during and one is post. And a lot of the world thinks about it that way. So in terms of the pre, um, like a lot of other people, I was thinking primarily about energy efficiency in buildings. And then I started working with a colleague of mine at the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, Joe Allen, who was looking a lot at indoor air quality and uh, as compared to outdoor air quality and impacts on a lot of things around health and cognition. We talk about air quality a lot in terms of pollution and sulfur and stuff outside in the sky. But really, you know, we are the indoor generation. We spend 90% of our time 
indoors, inside your house, inside your office, inside your school, inside some means of, trans, of, of uh, transportation, unless you're maybe a farmer or a cowboy or something like that. Indoor air quality isn't really paid that much attention to. And historically, it's been looked at in terms of off gases and volatile organic compounds and things coming from your carpet or things coming from your household cleaners. We've only really recently started to look at the components of outdoor air uh, pollution or uh, things that are detrimental to your health in terms of indoor air quality, notably carbon dioxide, particulates, and volatile organic compounds. So when Joe started talking about those aspects, and I started tying those to my real estate experience, thinking people in the real estate space go to a lot of effort to have their buildings compete in lots of levels. Why aren't we thinking about this? Maybe we're sort of missing the boat if we're chasing pennies on fans and filtration and losing thousands of dollars at a time on the impacts of air quality on how people um, feel and how they act and how they behave and how they work in indoor spaces. Yeah, well, let's drill into the subject of educational spaces in particular. Over the last two episodes, we've had guests who've given us insight into both the K through 12, as well as the higher ed educational realms. And these are customers who have actually implemented some of our technologies to help with their indoor air quality. I, what I'm learning from you is that the, the quality of air indoors can not only be a matter of health, but you actually think it can affect learning outcomes as well. Tell me about that. Absolutely. We think it affects cognition. So some of the studies we've done are double-blind experiments, not with, with grade school kids, but with office workers who volunteer to, to be working for a week doing their regular work in uh, a situation where the air that they are breathing is being controlled by researchers. It's a double-blind experiment. The researchers don't know what they're doing, but they're altering levels of, for example, CO2. There's about 420 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. We can do human subject tests at Harvard to about 1,500 parts per million of CO2. Although if you get in a stuffy airplane or in a really bad conference room, it might be at 3,000 or, or something like that, or 4,000 parts per million. We also test particulates, notably the, the PM2.5s, which are the ones that can get lodged in your lungs and volatile organic compounds. And what we had these uh, research subjects do was take short cognition tests three times a day. And they were uh, standard tests that had been used for a long time to measure sort of changes in cognition in various environments. And we found that for pretty much every single person, that their cognition improved when they were in areas of particularly cleaner air and was measurably worse um, to maybe a standard deviation for a lot for each person. Not measuring against the whole population, but for each person on measurements like memory, strategy, um, sort of long-term planning, things like that in these, these really well understood cognition tests. So when I saw those results, I thought, okay, now we have to think about this in terms of, of office space. And obviously it applies to learning at multiple levels, whether it's kids in elementary school where you can open the window or whether it's biologists in a really closed laboratory. Yeah, this is fascinating because I think this is a moment in our nation's history when we're thinking a lot about the, the gaps, the divides. People who have access to education, people who have access to healthy places to work and those who don't. And what you're describing to me is, you know, something that will truly affect our performance as individuals. But, but you're also finding that truly being able to remove pathogens from the air is going to leave us healthier overall. Are you anticipating a future in which 
uh, when the next virus comes through, we're actually able to leave buildings open and in particular leave our schools open? When COVID-20 or 21 or 23 comes along, we can't be having these kind of shutdowns again because it's just so damaging to society and it's so disproportionate. So, you know, if you're a, a fancy Wall Street banker and now you can go to Florida or Colorado and work remotely, no big deal. If you're a, a six-year-old in a, a poorer neighborhood who's missing a year of learning to read, this is a problem. Or if you have a job where you can't afford to miss a day because you can't miss the paycheck. So you have to go to work in the supermarket or the meat cutting place or the factory or driving a bus. It's really disproportionate influence. But I think going forward, there's um, a couple of things that have changed. One is that People had an awareness of health earlier and they thought, yeah, I guess I should you know, eat better food or work out more. The awareness of what's in the air is not going to go away. It's been so etched into our consciousness in the United States and Europe and Asia and Africa, everywhere. So people are going to be thinking about that and they'll be asking questions about it. The second is it's not that difficult to accomplish uh, better indoor air if the outside air is decent or going through some other mechanisms. So then you wind up having one of these classic cases of, should we spend a little bit more in capital expenditure now to have better operating results down the road? And this is where you run into issues that were of disparity between, say, an elementary school that can barely even keep the teachers paid. What are they going to do? Spend a lot of capital budget on ultraviolet uh, uh, light or on deionization or something, or are they going to keep paying the teachers as compared to higher education that has more opportunity to do some of those other interventions? Actually, on this point of the modifications to schools, we were delighted at Siemens to see the details in the American Rescue Plan. The idea that there is money being set aside to help improve facilities overall. I'm curious, have you been involved in that discussion? Did you help shape any of that as well? Well, Joe and I both have been, uh, my my uh, colleague Joe Allen has been more directly involved, but basically we look at a hierarchy of controls. It's, it's taken from public health and then it's used with a benefit cost analysis, which I bring from my buildings and real estate experience. And if you think about a hierarchy like Maslow's hierarchy or the housing pyramid, having uh, elements like this, the bottom you could think of the things that have the most impact, those are the widest, but you put it at the bottom because they're most expensive. That's a lockdown. So lockdowns are really effective in terms of preventing transmission, but they're super expensive because they disrupt society so much. The next level up in the pyramid, a little bit narrower, isn't as effective, but it's also less expensive, which is critical workers come to work, the bus drivers, the grocery store people, the nurses, doctors, people like that. The next two layers are the most interesting for this audience, that one of them is sort of in the middle is engineering interventions or things you do in the building. And these are filtration, these are ionization, these are uh, elevators, these are plastic guards, all the physical capital things that you can do. This percolates out by uh, kind of a balance sheet. So if you think of the, the fancy hotels and restaurants they're trying to open up, they're doing physical things. But if you think about the smaller ones out in the suburbs, they don't have all that money, they're doing administrative things. The tables are six feet away, they're out on the street, they're... Um, uh, making sure that they alternate people, they test them and those kind of things. So that's the balance. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, it should be possible under that hierarchy to really to open pretty much every school in America in a thoughtful way, but all with different um, uh, treatments, depending on what their circumstances are. Depending on the circumstances. And then what you're also sharing with us is that there are very reasonable uh, cost trade-offs to be made here and that the trade-off between the capital expense and then the operational gain often can be a no-brainer. 
Right. That's exactly right. That's true of lots of things, but you know, those are subtle and they depend on circumstances. So they're harder to get into the newspaper. Yeah. And it's also a matter of aligning those risks and rewards, right? To, to make sure that those who are bearing the expense are also going to see some of that benefit. Uh, so it, we at Siemens are, are working with folks on exactly that equation. I'm curious what you've seen in terms of the nexus between energy efficiency and the kinds of systems that you've been advocating for better air quality. So it's a great question. A lot of us spend a lot of time in the green building space thinking about energy. Think about a company that's basically knowledge workers like a law firm or investment bank or accounting firm or something like that. For most companies like that, maybe half of their income statement is taken up by payroll. It's the people who they pay. Another 20 or 30% is taken up by the rent they pay for their space. And two or 3% is taken up by energy expense. So People look at the energy expense because it's easy to see, it's easy to break out, it's easy to give somebody a pat on the back for saving 5% of 2%. What difference does that make in the big scheme if you're, if you're not running the fans or if you're not changing the filters? If you think about the half of your income statement that has to do with the people. And I talked before about these effects on cognition. So people have said for a long time that it pays to have a healthy building because people just aren't sick as often. And with fewer sick days, you're getting a little more productivity. If it's really so that people's cognition improves, if they write two more articles, make three more sales calls, process a couple more insurance claims, that goes to the top line of a company. And we haven't made the empirical link yet, but it's pretty easy to see that if you're getting a percent or two on that cognition piece and people aren't sick as often, then it's substantially more beneficial uh, than a giant expense in energy. So the first aspect is, it's the wrong thing to look at. You know, it's the, it, the companies are siloed and somebody's getting out of boy because they can measure BTUs per hour. It's hard to measure output. The second aspect is um, certainly in newer buildings, it's not that much more expensive to think about thoughtful in insulation, thoughtful air infiltration, thoughtful moisture and vapor barriers, and then have that efficient energy perform energy recovery ventilation. Instead of dumping all the exhaust air out into the sky, you recycle it. You recover the energy from that and bring it back in so that the building has more filtration of the fresh air, but you're not wasting all that energy that you just used to cool and heat the building. So these buildings actually pencil in substantially lower operating costs down the road and have a relatively short payback um, in the multifamily space right now. Yeah, yeah, there are so many factors at play. Uh, it's not just what we are learning about the built infrastructure and the quality of the air, its effect on us. It's also, quite frankly, how we're using our buildings. And we know that a lot of that is in transformation. And in fact, we at Siemens have made the decision that going forward, we're only going to expect employees to be coming into the office two to three days a week. Mm. So, so buildings, whether they're home or the, the Wi-Fi center down the street or the, you know, our actual office building, this is all part of the backbone of our economy. And I would love to hear your thoughts about how the public and private sector might play together. Uh, what dynamics could we bring to bear uh, to help actually drive improvements in this very dynamic time we're living in? So it could be that the entire world gets COVID-19 totally under control in the next 12 months. It's done and no other uh, virus ever happens. And there's tremendous awareness of, uh, you know, everybody feels good. Or it could be that we never get this one 
under control because you can get it again or it has variants. And the next one comes and people remain very aware of public health and contagion kind of issues that they get, particularly from aerosols, which is how COVID-19 is spread, or from touching, which is how flu is spread. So that could go either way. The other is around comfort with remote work. So right now you can say, yes, our people are working from home and you and I are doing this uh, you know, virtually like this, but there are other companies who are already saying this is not working, we're bringing people in. So we don't know whether the vast bulk of people with a choice and absent COVID would say, I'm going to keep working remotely or not. So the, the uh, outcome of that, that two by two of those scenarios are really different possibilities. So if, if COVID and other diseases largely get contained and if people get sick of working remotely, that means that they'll come back to large downtowns. Big thing in the New York Times today about how office buildings in New York are so challenged and never come back. Um, maybe not. But if people think about public health, worry about the other aspects, are happy working remotely, this is really good for second and third tier cities everywhere in the world. It means you don't have to get to downtown, to lower Manhattan or the center of Delhi or the center of London every day. You can work in a, in a faraway place. You know, maybe not in, in uh, borough Alaska or Bozeman, Montana, but you, know, you could work um, in West Palm and go to Orlando or Miami or something like that. Um, that really changes how people use transportation. And the second, actually the third piece in that, which Siemens is involved in particularly is mass transit. So right now transit uh, facilities are getting clobbered because there's no riders. They lose money anyway, but without tariffs, they do even worse. And it's really hard to imagine the big core cities, London, New York, Tokyo, them, Singapore thriving without extensive public transportation and people being comfortable. You know, John, you've put your finger on several areas we care about passionately at Siemens, and, and we really have been tackling this moment of disruption as an opportunity to strengthen the organization as we move forward. So you're right, there are office workers who can choose where they want to live. And it's been our mission to give people that kind of flexibility. Our goal is to help people be as productive as possible, whether it's in office buildings that we have or uh, the place of their choosing. And then likewise, the people who are working in essential roles like manufacturing, where they need to be present in order for us to be successful as a building, we want to make those spaces as healthy as possible. And by the way, we serve the whole manufacturing sector, not only with software and hardware to drive the future automation and the, the future of manufacturing, but also to help those folks transit, transition to a more sustainable, a healthier built infrastructure around them. And of course, your comments about, about transportation are spot on. We know that cities, regardless of the pace of change right now, cities will continue to be an essential part of our societies. We may be using buildings differently. We may be moving in and out of cities differently, but mass transportation is gonna be a vital element of it. So it's exciting to think about your ideas and the contributions you've been making through your work and how that might relate to this future that we're shaping together. Something I love to ask all my guests is, Imagine this future that we're all understanding now the things you've been studying so intently. We want to put that to use. Paint a picture for us of what that future world looks like. I guess in my conception, there are two pieces to that. One is happening pretty soon, and I think it's sort of irreversible. 
And that's the idea of people's personal awareness of the healthiness of the situation they're in. So Joe Allen and I have written about a number of health performance indicators. You and I have talked about indoor air quality. Five years ago, if you want to look at indoor air quality, you need to get a hygienist, they have a big tank, they go off to the lab, they come back a week later, and they have one, t- one finding from one point in time that they just give to the boss. Nobody else knows. Now you can go on Amazon or Best Buy and get any of 100 quite good personal air quality monitors for $100. And that democratizes the ability of people to know what the environment is like that they're in, on their subway, in their office, in their hotel room, in their child's school. Look at the particulates, look at the CO2. And if it's a high level of CO2, high level of particulates, the air is not very good. That's a better environment for COVID to thrive also. So the employer presumably will want to reach out and find out what is your home situation? What's your commuting situation? Let me get you a better chair. Let me get you a better air filter. Let me measure some of these things. And the third thing we see is who's going to pay for this? Well, sick people are really expensive. And there is so much blend now between insurance companies. And right now you can tell your insurance company what your blood oxygenation is based on your Apple Watch. You can tell your insurance company what your indoor air is based on your indoor monitor. You would think that health insurance companies would say to employers and and others, why don't we make sure your people are healthier up front and put up some of this capital expense to make the building healthier? Naturally, I'm imagining offices, homes, schools, apartment buildings, movie theaters, where we have healthier air, both outdoor air and indoor air. So it's a future where people are healthier, employers are happy to do it, and we're saving the system money because we're not spending as much money on people who are sick. So this is very much like the digital transformation we're seeing in so many different parts of our world, where the ability first to have sensors, to collect data, and then to analyze it, use it, put it to work for a better future, all comes together. It's exciting. Thanks for sharing that vision. And and John, thank you so much for being with us today on The Optimistic Outlook. Thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. John's certainly given us a lot to consider. We've been focused these last three episodes on schools, but of course, we're spending 90% of our time in buildings. And think about it. If we could improve air quality, we can actually be healthier. We can be healthier everywhere. This is a real opportunity for us to be stronger than we were before this disruption. So I want to direct you now to our show notes where you can access the resources we have available to support schools, colleges, and universities to reopen and to create safer, healthier environments that benefit students, teachers, and administrators for the many years ahead. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or to the Siemens YouTube channel. And for show notes and more, go to Siemens.com optimist.